Turn to 2 Corinthians, if you would. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. We'll be in chapter 7 from the message, but this is just a little background that may help us to understand. Paul wrote a letter to the Corinthians, sometimes called the sorrowful letter. We don't know if it's 1 Corinthians. Some think it is. Some think it's a lost letter. Maybe. But he obviously dealt with some very painful subjects. Could be the brother in an incestuous relationship with his uh, stepmother in 1 Corinthians 5. It could be the disputes, all the confusion that was going on in the church at that time. Uh, it can be the minority party that keeps questioning his apostolic authority, keep questioning, uh, are you really an apostle? And it was an effort to discredit his message. Uh, so they went after the messenger, Paul. We're not quite sure what all was up, but it was painful. And he says, uh, so I made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you. So... He's gone. He's had a painful reception. And he sends Titus to go see the church next time. For if I grieve, who is left to make me glad? But you whom I have grieved. I wrote as I did so that when I came, I would not be distressed by those who should have made me rejoice. I had confidence in all of you that you would all share my joy. For I wrote you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. So I'm, I'm sorry for the grief. And it goes over here in chapter 7. Let's pick up verse 5. Chapter 7, verse 5. For when we came into Macedonia, we had no rest. But we were harassed at every turn, conflicts on the outside, probably opposition, fears within. It's a little comforting, isn't it, for you that have had those times when all you could see was conflict on the outside and had an internal fear and shaking. Here's the Apostle Paul having the same emotions. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. Just a rhetorical question. Would you be a source of comfort if you came to somebody that was downcast? Could you bring them comfort? Here he said, God put his comfort in a man, Titus. Wouldn't it be nice to say, here comes Brother Comforter. Instead of, oh no, turn out the lights. Pull the shades. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort you had given him. He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. I see that my letter hurt you, 
but only for a little while. Yet now I'm happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so we were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret but worldly sorrow brings death. I want to speak on the subject of repent or else. Uh, sounds rather strong, doesn't it? But as we see what the Bible says about our sin and repentance, it seems to be that strong. Repent or else face serious consequences. Here Paul is dealing with a problem in the church. He's written a letter that it pained him to write. It caused pain to them. And so he sounded like double talk. Uh, you were pained. I was pained. Uh, I, I didn't want to hurt you, but I did. And I thought it was necessary. Uh, how, how many of you grew up with this view? It can't get you better unless it stings. Anybody remember methylate? Never heard of Bactine. I mean, by the time they came out with Bactine, I thought, this is sissy medicine. It's got to sting. It's got to hurt. It's got to, you know, have a bite to it. Uh, and you're like the parent that says, I, I hate to do this to you, uh, it's going to make you cry maybe or wince a bit, but it will get you better, so I'm not sorry. So are you sorry or are you not? I'm both sorry and I'm not. I want to do what it takes to get you well. But I think that's something we ought to look at. Godly sorrow leads to repentance. And repentance leads to salvation, not to be regretted. Uh, I want to look at the three things, sorrow, and uh, then look at repentance, what does it really mean? And then look at salvation. Let's see what it means. He says there's two kinds of sorrow. He says there's a worldly sorrow that brings death, and there's a godly sorrow that brings repentance. Now, today, are people in sorrow? Are people hurting? Have you heard of opioids? Have you heard of drugs? I need a drug to go to sleep on. I need a drug to calm my nerves. I need a drug to give me an upper. Uh, besides Red Bull, I need about three other uppers. Uh, we're the most drugged culture in world history. I mean, drugs are everything. Anxiety, volume, sleeping medication, uh, on and on and on and on. We've got a pill for about everything. I, I have a churning stomach all the time. I'm on a pill. 
My nerves are a little bit racked. I'm on. We got a pill for it. If you'll get a symptom, we'll invent a pill. This pharmaceutical's nearly going broke, you know. And here are the causes. I cannot name all. Here, I'm going to say this before I get started or I get any mail. That all sorrow, all sickness is not a result of sin. Because you've got Job. Here's a man that loses everything in a day. And we know the, the whole plot. We know it's Satan coming against him that if he's stripped, he'll deny God. And God said, this man can pass the test trying. He hasn't sinned. He's, he's a righteous man. Go ahead. So we have a man and uh, his very wise comforters set by him in the ash heap for seven days. And they scratched their head and said, you've done something wrong. You, you cannot be having this much pain and not be wrong. So we've got to be careful. Everybody having trouble doesn't mean uh, they've been sinning. They've done, they, they're just having trouble. And I listed some of the things in the Bible that brings trouble. Death. It brings sorrow. And even tells believers, you've got sorrow. Just be sure it's not the ungodly kind where you do weird stuff. It's okay to sorrow. Uh, sickness. Job says that in Job 6. He was sorrowful. Affliction, Zephaniah 3. Pain in Psalm 69. Whenever I'm pain, it brings sorrow, whether that's emotional, physical. Uh, that's why in sickness, uh, your body and your soul are such close neighbors, they catch either, each other's diseases. If your body's down, it's easy to be depressed, discouraged, blue, melancholic. Your body is affecting uh, your mood. I remember when I was first diagnosed with diabetes, uh, Rich Rollins told me he had worked with people. And he said, now, you got to watch out, Phil. You're going to have mood swings. He said, you're going to, because this, uh, You've got a chemical imbalance going on. Your blood's going to go up. It's going to go down. Your energy's going to go up. It's going to go down. And I think you'll make all of this a spiritual problem. You'll call it carnality. I feel carnal. He said, no, your blood sugar's crashing on you. You might need to get some food in you. You might have too much sugar in you. You've got you've to calculate the chemistry going on in your body. So I'm just telling you, your body is going to affect your moods. It's going to affect your energy. So the body and soul, such close neighbors, I'm depressed. Oh, by the way, I'm sick. Oh, by the way, I'm taking enough drugs. I don't hardly know who I am. It's very complex. Uh, Jesus facing a crisis called the cross. He's sorrowful, exceedingly sorrowful, crisis situations. Uh, and I, I think of, uh, you have in the 1800s, Charles Darwin, about 1870, uh, writes his book, The Origin of the Species, and we begin this long 
development of evolutionary science. But one of its theses, of course, is that we're becoming a better species. We're improving. Uh, we're becoming a superior race. And just did anything happen in the 1900s to disprove that theory? Have you heard of World War I and trench warfare? No, many of you haven't because you don't even know there was a World War II. 1912, 1916, France, Germany, Britain, World War I, brutal. Men sleeping among the corpses, the rats, the feces, and no man's land in a terrible trench warfare. World War II, slaughter. Stalin alone rewards his soldiers by killing millions of them when they return from World War II. In Russia, he killed his own people. And of course, Hitler said, I've got to get rid of Jews, blacks, and gypsies. And so he killed six million. It didn't sound to me like man was getting better. Man is dangerous. He's sinful. He's a rebel. He is deceitful. He is lost and loved by God. And all the time, he resists the only thing that can cure him. This is his dilemma outside of Christ. Now, let's talk about godly sorrow. What is godly sorrow? Sorrow that God authors and that God uses for a purpose. He said, Worldly sorrow just results in death, divorce, death, broken relationships, estrangement, uh, away, away. It's destructive, destructive. Uh, worldly sorrow can keep you at a bar stool every night getting drunk because of what's happening in your home and destroy your life and a life of death, a life of uh, pain. Uh, on and on and on, worldly sorrow. It's all the heartbreak songs, all the country songs. She left me. She took my dog. She took this. She took that. And they say if you play the record backward, you get everything back. <laughs> so, you know, uh, when we talk about uh, worldly sorrows, one thing, but what about godly sorrow? What is that? Uh, obviously, sorrow that God obviously brings into our life. Now, the, the leading example of this is we've got a boy brought from the flock, the least of Jesse's sons, not even worthy to be mentioned to Samuel. And uh, he escapes Saul's hand. He finally moves into Jerusalem after fleeing on the Judean hillsides, fleeing down to the Dead Sea, going down to En Gedi, living in absolute wilderness, living out there against un unbelievable odds. Finally, Jesse's boy is set up on a throne, the man who will be a progenitor of Messiah, and he has 15 women in his harem, and he decides he's going to kill Uriah to add one more. So he carries out the plot, brings in Joab, 
No one's to know. Has Uriah carried the very sealed letter that is his death sentence? A man that was a Gentile Hittite, a man that was loyal to the king, a man that would not even visit his wife when he's coming home from war because the men of Israel are out there in trenches and tents. He said, I'm not worthy to sleep with my wife while the tribes of Israel are fighting the Philistines while David is just lounging around the temple, the palace. And I happened to see a man's wife bathing as they did on the housetop. They didn't have showers. She went out there seducing. It's just common. Fixation, I want her, get her. Well, she's married. I can eliminate that. I'm the king, you know. Eliminate Uriah, takes him. Now, David, finally, after nearly a year's cover-up, the baby starts coming around, and he picks up a pen, and God says, under the guidance of the Spirit, I want you to write my people and tell them what you experienced. What was it like being God's man pulling off this sin and covering it up. Nobody knows about it but Joab, Bathsheba, and you. Turn to Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one the Lord does not count against him his sin. But let me tell you what I went through. When I kept silent about my sin, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Now, did David quit having bones? No, no. We're we're in poetic language. The frame of my being, my bone structure, The frame, and this is a warrior king. My frame felt like every bone in my body was wasting away, and I was in constant groaning. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. We would call it depression. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Now imagine when the hand of omnipotence wants to press down on your head. You can get all the pills you want. You can't remove the hand of omnipotence. Pharmacists, there's no cure for this man's problem. You can't medicate this away. This is unconfessed sin. This is my child. I'm going to press him down. It's like I'm going to put your face in the dirt. Boy, you're going to get it. You can't pull this off and me not do something about it. Do you like it? I'm going to put your, it's like the dog's nose pushed in the manure. I'm going to push your face into your sin. 
Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave me the guilt of my sin. Verse 9, he has a word of exhortation. Do not be like the horse or the mule. Are there any horses or mule-tempered people here which have no understanding? It's called, you're a hard-headed child, but must be controlled by bit and bridle or they will not come to you. Cooperate. Let God's eye train you, not pain, the bit, the bridle. Come. Let me just look at you. Notice what he says. I will instruct you and teach you the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. I grew up with a father. It only took his eye to, believe me, strike fear in us. There's a brother asking. We went out somewhere. We didn't tear up a house because L.J. Howard said, I'm looking at you, boy. We have an appointment. If you don't sit down and behave. Yes, Father. Now remember, he's pre-Spock. There's no Spock in our house. Book of Proverbs. 38. Look at Psalms 38. Please, Lord, don't rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath. We're talking about godly sorrow. What kind of sorrow can God bring into a heart for sin if he wants you to listen to him? Your arrows have pierced me, and your hand has come down on me. I can't imagine being shot with an arrow. And just having an arrowhead in you to get that thing out. Because of your wrath, there is no health in my body. Could you be sick because God is bringing sorrow? Does God need permission to make you sick? He killed people in the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians 11. And he made some of them sick because of the way they took the Lord's Supper. Could he make you sick? He made David sick. A body, there's nothing well. And this is, this is not Brother uh, Twinkie. This man had to kill a hundred Philistines to get a bride. A hundred. I mean, this is a strong man. You talk about athletic. He he killed men before he took martial arts. He moved from being a shepherd to a warrior pretty quick. And said, I'm I'm sick. There's no soundness in my bones. Why? Because I haven't been working out. Because, because of my sin. My guilt has overwhelmed me. It's like a burden too heavy to bear. My wounds fester and are loathsome because of my sinful folly. This is, I know where my trouble's coming from. 
I know why I'm having this trouble. Psychosomatic, physical, depression, the hand of God. I know where it's coming. It's coming from one night fleeing and consenting to the death of Uriah. I'm the king. I don't have to be taken to court. Nobody tells me what to do. I run Israel. You don't run God. You will not run God. You will not mock him. He will have the final word. You best fear him, David. You're not above godly sorrow. I'm going to crush you. I'm bowed down and brought very low. All day long I go about mourning. My back is filled with pain. There's no health in my body. I am feeble, utterly crushed. I groan in anguish of heart. Then he says in Psalm 51, I've lost the joy of my salvation. I'm living daily in the fear that you may take your spirit from me like you did Saul, because I watched as demons took over where God's presence used to minister to Saul. Only demons visited him so bad that when he gets ready to go to battle, he goes to the witch of Endor and says, bring up Samuel. I can't get a word from God anymore. God's quit talking to me. And she conjures up Samuel. And Samuel comes up before him and said, you're going to die on the battlefield tomorrow, Saul, because you wouldn't obey God. And he brought him pain, he brought him death, and he saw all of his boys killed, including Jonathan on the day of battle, the first great mighty king of Israel, killed and consulting a witch medium to find out what his destiny would be. Was he saved or not? I don't know. Did he ever repent? I never hear about it. Can you have sorrow that never leads to repentance? Judas went out and it said he wept bitterly. He had remorse, but he never had repentance. I've seen people, when I've preached to, I've seen people I've counseled. We went through the Kleenex. They cried. They cried. I remember trying to talk a woman out of an adulterous affair and kept talking to her, kept talking to her. She wept. She wept. I kept handing the Kleenex, and she refused to leave the guy, a drunken man, and left the family. The tears and the emotion and the remorse never did change her direction. But I know another man named Peter went out. He wept, but after he got through weeping, he joined back with the disciples, and he said, well, at least I know he was Messiah. He'll never use me again. Let's go to Galilee. Let's go fishing. And of all things, in the midst of his sorrow, Jesus shows up and said, do you love me? I know you failed me, but do you think you can leave these nets and follow me? He said, I prayed for you, Peter. That's why you're not lost. I told you you were going to fall, and I told you I was going to I let you fall because pride always destroys a man. So he said, I'm going to restore you. Godly sorrow. 
I begin to write down uh, things I, I know of people. Uh, I think of a, a, a prodigal in the story. Is it not amazing? The boy never thinks of home. Never think, he never gets homesick. He never thinks of his dad as long as he had the money, had the women, and could eat whatever he wanted. And all of a sudden, he's in a Gentile country. He's out where they actually raise hogs, and a famine hits the land. And of all things, a good Jewish boy is eating with the hogs. And all of a sudden, he remembered dad. What a kind man dad was. Instead of asking for the elders to kill him when he asked for his inheritance, he just gave it to him. I keep asking of the backslider and the one that's quit church and quit God and just out there, out there. Has the famine ever hit your life yet? Have you bottomed out? Have you bottomed out? I know a brother that told me many keep going on in their sin because they've never repented. They only say they're sorry, but they won't change. And he shared his own story of pain and the hounds of heaven tracking him down and taking the fun out of sin and saying, I must, I must repent. I must change. I think of a Ledesma there that he had this praying wife still in lots of trouble until they scrape him up from a highway one night and we wonder if he's going to live his wife keeps praying. This church prays. Dino's with us, alive by the grace of God. God says, I want to give you enough pain and enough sorrow. Will you listen to me now? I spared your life to get you. Years ago, I heard J. Vernon McGee tell the story. Do the best I can to recapsulate it. He told about a... Uh, a preacher in Texas that uh, up around Amarillo, a lot of cowboys there. W.A. Criswell grew up in Amarillo and cattlemen. And there was a, a, a tough rancher, tough, godless man, but had a Christian wife and twin girls. And those girls were the apple of his eye. He was very rude to that pastor. Pastor would go there sometime to see the wife, call on the children, but usually treated rudely by this rancher. Didn't want anything to do with God. Don't want to talk to preacher. You know, I want money. I want to make money off my cattle. Don't bother me. Give me some more beech nut and give me some money. I'm not interested in religion. One day in his old pickup, he heard, news come on that the local school where his girls went had caught fire and there were casualties. He drives to that school and believe it or not, the twins perished. And uh, that preacher said, 
This is one home visit I never wanted to make. I didn't want to meet this uh, rude, non-religious man in such a tragedy. He went to the home. The wife greeted the preacher. The rancher guy was in a, a den, couldn't talk. Preacher went in there, sat down for a long time. Nothing was said, nothing was said. Finally, this old rancher broke down, and he said, You know, preacher, I know that God's been on my trail for years, and I just kept pushing him away, pushing him away. I never knew he wanted me this bad. I never knew he wanted me this bad. I, I just never thought he would take my girls to get my attention. Accepted Christ that day and has gone to heaven. What will it take for you to listen to God? Uh, how much sorrow do you want? It's kind of interesting that this repentance is not just for an unsaved man to come to Christ. Jesus said eight times in Revelation, uh, Ephesus, you've lost your first love, and if you don't get it back, I'm going to remove the church. He's talking to us. Have we lost our first love? Is there anything about valley we need to repent about? Are we doing anything in this church that's grieving the Spirit of God? Oh, we all pray for revival, the elders, when we pray on Saturday night. We're always praying for revival. I wonder if repentance comes first. Do you ever repent of your sins, of your idols, of your secret attitudes, your ungodly thinking, uh, whatever, individually? Is there a corporate attitude in this church that God says, you're on the verge of being closed unless you think like I think. Oh, you can't get that way. This is 90 AD. This is God the Son, not a church consultant. I will close you. Sardis, you're tolerating the teachings of Balaam. If you don't take care of that and snuff out that doctrine, I will remove you unless you repent. Thyatira, you're allowing Jezebel to tear up the church. She's seducing my servants. They're involved in immorality, and you're looking the other way. You're winking the other way because we don't do any church discipline. That's barbaric. Nobody does that in grows, you know. You can't discipline people and have a church grow. If you don't remove her, I'm going to remove you. Laodicea, you tell me you don't need a thing I've got to offer because you're already well healed. You've got plenty of money. You can see. You've got your own bank account. Well, you're broke. You're naked before me, and I'm about to spew you out of my mouth because you've become so lukewarm. You're a sickening church. And unless you repent and get your zeal for God back, 
I'm going to remove the lampstand. And friend, I've visited Turkey. I've visited Asia Minor. There's no church in Ephesus. There's no church in Thyatira. There's no church in Sardis. They've all been removed. You know, churches all over this country are closing. They're always closing. And we might be next. No, no, this church won't exist because we got a building. We're selling buildings all the time. What makes a church is the people in it. Are they doing what Christ wants? Is Christ's agenda being done in this church? Is his priorities our priority? Because you can get to, pretty soon you got this club, you got this meeting, we got this, and you got this potluck, you got that. Say, hey, is there anything down there that Jesus died to get done? Is there anything down there Jesus authorized? I just come to church to see if they're doing it the way I like it. They didn't sing anything I like. Hey, no, you want us to act like we ought to sing the first song you ever heard. You've been saved. You've been saved only five, 50 years. They do write new songs. But we get that inflexibility. Everything I want is the absolute. Everything God wants is what's absolute. Taste change. Taste change. It's what God wants. Does God care if we sit on pews or theater seats? David tried to get theater seats. I tried to save us money, so we're on pews. And man, we gotta move you people over. It makes me sick to look all the way. Wait, I want you in. Because I want faces, not spaces. I don't want to be spaced out in church. He said, Godly sorrow leads to repentance. Have you ever um Repented. He told the churches they better repent. When John the Baptist started his ministry, he said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. When Jesus started preaching, he said in Mark 1.15, repent and believe the gospel. So they went right together. Repent and believe the gospel. Now what's amazing, where I went to school, they don't believe that you should have to repent. Because the gospel of John that tells you how to be saved never used the word repentance one time. It's only the word believe. First John, repentance is not found. Believe. So the two sides of saving faith is I repent. I changed my mind about my sin and the direction I was going, and I put faith in the Lord Jesus. One's negative. I turn on what I was doing and what I was to embrace the Lord Jesus. They're both going together. They both go together. Repentance in the book of Acts. He said in Acts 20, 21, I preach to the Gentiles repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what does it mean to repent? Basically, it meant afterthought, metanoia, after noose, my mind, 
but it felt to, it had an emotional aspect. Feel remorse. Uh, I, I regret what I did. Uh, it was used of uh, changing my opinion. And so it had that, it had a volitional uh, idea. It meant, I am sorry, I've done wrong. Uh, it's not sorrow without change, like Judas, but neither is it deep feeling or change without going through the emotional remorse. How could I have done this against God? How could I have rejected Christ so long? I can imagine David. Imagine. He said, my sin is ever before me. I don't know about you. I, I, I don't know if the rest of David's life he thought of that night. I don't know if the rest of his life he th might have thought of what it felt like for J Joab to put Uriah right in a key spot in the city to be, have a stone thrown on him and killed. David rehearsed it, I'm sure, a thousand times. The sorrow led to a repentant man. Repentance is what we do when we forsake sin and we cling to Christ. I'm repenting of that. I, in faith, embrace Christ. He said it results in salvation. Results in salvation. Now, what does that mean? Was he writing to save people when he said, I wrote you a sorrowful letter? Was he writing to the saved or the unsaved? Eh? Yeah. So should you ever ask a believer to repent? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, maybe you're one of these people, I haven't changed my mind in 30 years, and I'm proud of it. It's like the guy that said, guy said, do you ever tell your wife you love her? And he said, yeah, I said that 30 years ago. It stands good until I revoke it. <laughs> Reminds you of that guy that took his wife to the counselor, and she's all down. The marriage not doing good. And counselor talks to him. You ought to do this. You ought to do that. Finally, the counselor goes around and kisses her. She lights up. And the husband said, what in the world did you do to her? He said, well, I, I, I kissed her. You saw it. And the guy said, Wow. And the counselor said, she needs something like that at least three times a week. He said, man, I could only bring her in once a week. <laughs> you know, uh, just clueless, clueless. Uh, that salvation here is initially when we were saved, we repented and believed. But repentance is like confession. It goes on all of our life. If you're growing, I'm changing my mind. I'm changing my view. I'm changing my attitude. I, I'm ch Let me ask, is God changing you? Is God changing you? I know you're trying to change me. You're trying to change her. Try and change him. Is God changing you? It was so refreshing 
when my wife finally apologized. It was like biting nails for her because she could never be wrong. She thought she was wrong when she married me. But see, I, I apologize all the time because I know I'm a big sinner. I apologize 10 times more. Guess what? I need to 10 times more. So that's not a virtue. Not a virtue. But it was very hard for her to ever say, I'm wrong. And when she did, I usually recorded it. <laughs> Do, does anyone know what I'm saying? Go ahead, Ben. Raise your hand if you live with Miss Perfect. You know, and I, I, I know people like this that is, man, how many times I've had to change my mind about people, situations, and about me. I got into a um, wrong attitude years ago. There was a person that was slandering me, gossiping in this, and I just learned about in 1 John 5, the sin unto death. And I decided I knew what it meant. Kill our Lord. And I did a few times. I said, Lord, she's touching your anointed me. Kill her in Jesus' name. <laughs> and she's a believer. You don't know how close some of you came to being in that prayer. <laughs> Let me tell you, she knows, and Fran, she was there. That prayer request got crumbled up some way getting to heaven. I don't know. That was still when we were doing IBM cards. It got crumbled up. And the next thing I know, I am sick. Oh, you think I've been, you think he's judging me again because I'm just getting over the flu. No, that's normal. That's, that, that's worldly. No, I, I got so bad, I thought I was having a nervous breakdown. Uh, I couldn't thank Carly. Graduation was coming. Uh, I had to have my wife and friend put the diplomas together, and I'm the dean. I should have been in. I, I could not function. I, I'm going to the doctor. I, I, I'm telling Carolyn I'm losing my mind. I am not serious. I'm, I'm not making. At night, I would sleep with a Bible on my head. <laughs> and I'd say, but you have given us not the spirit of fear, but of love and of power and of a sound mind. I claim it in Jesus' name while I'm going insane. <laughs> she knows. I, I'm not making this up. Because uh, God says, I want to bring some godly sorrow in your life. You don't get permission to think that way about a brother or sister. Who do you think you are asking me to kill someone in Jesus' name? 
I said, well, it'd feel good for right now. <laughs> Get her off my neck. That's why I'm your pastor. I'm the biggest sinner in the place. Well, you nearly killed me. I had to repent. And he saved me. And she's a wonderful gal. I just got the wrong attitude. I can't believe it. I was wrong. I was wrong. And she's still breathing and kicking. Thank God. He doesn't answer every prayer. We better stand. I just want you to know. God. If you're his child, and if he's in the process of making you his child, he wants you just to answer his voice, but if you want pain, he could arrange it. He, he, he's plenty capable. Does it sound like a threat? It's just an awesome thing to fall in the hands of the living God. You ought to come while he calls. Come while he beseeches. Come while he says, come take my yoke. Let, I must sing this. I'm, I'm over time, but this is free. <laughs> Could someone say, go on? You see there? All critics, you heard that. I've only heard my black brothers and sisters sing this song, and I went looking for it. I just found it. How many of you have ever heard the song, Come Ye Disconsolate? I wonder why not. This was written in 1779. It hasn't been on K-Love lately. <laughs> Listen. Come ye disconsolate, wherever you languish. Come to the mercy seat. Fervently kneel. Here bring your wounded hearts. Here tell your anguish. Here's the line. Earth has no sorrow that heaven cannot heal. How many of my black brothers and sisters sung that in church? Yes. Yeah. I went up on YouTube. It was only blacks singing this song. Joy of the desolate, light of the strain, hope of the penitent, fadeless and pure. Here speaks the comforter, tenderly saying, earth has no sorrow that heaven cannot cure. Here see the bread of life, see waters flowing forth from the throne of God, pure from above. Come to the feast of love. Come, ever knowing, earth has no sorrow, but heaven can remove. I don't know what sorrow you're in, but conviction, wooing. God must many times make you miserable before you'll ever come. You must find out that you're diseased and find out there's only one place Go to Gilead. There's a bomb there that can heal you. And this bomb 
is Jesus. I came to heal of earth's sorrow. I came all the way from heaven. You remember what he said to Israel? I've heard your cry in Exodus. I've heard your cry. You're tired of being slaves and making bricks out of straw. Uh, your God is coming down because there's no sorrow earth has that heaven cannot heal. And if you would only repent and turn to Jesus, God will heal you and bring joy and peace and happiness. Oh, come to Christ and you'll be saved for time and eternity. Our Father, we pray, do a deep work in every heart. Searches. Is there anything we need to repent of? Is there anything we need to change our mind and our heart about. Anything in this church, anything in me, anything in the pew, oh, Lord Jesus, be the head of valley. Tell us what to do. The voice of the shepherd, let it be loud enough that through all the cacophony of this age, let the voice of the shepherd and the voice of eternity ring, ring in this place. I pray, save, save, save. The mother must be pregnant. The mother must maturate that baby. And then there's pain. And thank God, then there can be deliverance. And then when you're bringing someone to you, there's pain. Many times there's sorrow, but you want to rescue them. If they'll only change their mind about their sin and embrace Christ. I pray, Father, as uh, Sean tells us how we could reach our neighbors and do something practical as we come up to Easter. I ask that you'll help us to be a going church, that when we're scattered through the week, that we'll be having conversations with people about the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to do it. Amen.